0: So, we are basically uh, at the beginning of week three. So, you have had, if I'm correct in thinking, six, seven, eight, nine reflections so far. Um, actually, I think most of them are pretty short, I think. So, hopefully, um, you've been able to mostly keep up. Don't worry if you're not able to. Um, uh, but, you know, it's kind of like I try to keep the reflections between five minutes and 30 minutes Roughly, And then hopefully that gives you enough time to sit and let them percolate in your mind as well. Um, This week, in some respects, uh, is the most important week of Atheism for Lent because this is the week where atheism and theism are going to start to intertwine. And that's something that I talk about when I promote this course. Uh, You've heard me say that we think of atheism and theism as separate things uh, that kind of like stand on different sides of a debating uh, stage. And I've argued that, that actually their relationship is much more interesting and much more intertwined. And I've talked about this idea of affirmation, negation, negation of negation, which is basically what is called dialectics and philosophy where a thesis, a position, gives way to its critique, and that critique gives way to another critique, and that second critique, the critique of critique, uh, opens up a new affirmation, becomes a new type of positive position. And then that can be negated, and then that negation is negated into a new affirmation. And that's the process that now is kicking off, right? So in the first few days, week one, we had, broadly speaking, because think about each week as a painting, right? So we're painting a picture. And the first week was traditional theism, the belief in God, looking at those arguments. Um, And this year I went for the kind of philosophical arguments. Um, And I think I said to you last week, I'm glad I did that. In one way but also I know it's maybe a boring way to start Uh, I think next year I'm going to take the less philosophical arguments but the ones that are more persuasive (laughs) um, like existentially so I might do that next year to mix it up so this year I went for the rigorous ones um, and you get a sense of okay these are the arguments for God and we did already talk about this that those arguments are generally in their original context not designed to persuade anybody they're more designed as a type of faith-seeking understanding so a person might find themselves already believing in God and then they want to be more rigorous in what they mean by that and those arguments have often been used to to do that then we've looked last week at a lot of the kind of traditional atheist arguments Um, and I tried to give you some of the best uh, the, you know, New Atheism fits very neatly actually with the week that you've just done. Um, it's I'm just double check and make sure you can hear me. Good. Sometimes I talk and someone says the the audio's off or something. So I no one's cracked up, right? Um, uh, you know, the arguments of New Atheism. Um, some of them are strong, some of them are weak or whatever. But these were kind of like I think some of the strong versions of these atheistic critiques, and. Um, this, uh, where you've come to this point, is probably not very new to you. Even if the arguments are new, even if the people are new, that notion of affirmation and negation is very common. But that's where things usually stop. And I hear all the time people say to me, uh, they use the terms Christian or atheist, right? And just in, in conversation, you go, oh, you know, that, that person's not a Christian, they're an atheist. As if, you know, atheism stands opposed as a negation to Christianity. And that's a very kind of like, it's almost, it's not something you, you even think about. It's the kind of water in which many of us swim. But this week is going to begin to uh, kind of make that much more nuanced. And we're going to discover there a form of atheism that is embedded within the Christian tradition. Oh, yes. So um, a form of atheism, there's forms of atheism in other religions as well, but primarily we're looking at the Christian tradition here. But there's a form of atheism that is a purification, um, a type of spiritual practice um, that's actually even more radical than a lot of the kind of atheistic critiques that you saw last week. And the first kind of theological form of atheism that I think is systematic and rigorous is the mystics. Um, it starts with someone called Pseudo-Dionysius, uh, and this idea that there is things that we can know, things that exist, and there's things that don't exist. But God, if God means anything, means a reality that is hyper-present, that is so real, we cannot conceptualize or experience. And this tradition Uh, Is very very rich and leads to a lot of the discussions that we'll be looking at in future weeks. Uh, The first person you're looking at is Maimonides, who um, has a very famous argument, um, which is called cataphatic theology, which is a theology of negation. That basically, every time you say something about God, you're you're not saying something positive. Um, At best, you're saying like if you're saying God is good, you don't mean good like us. Uh, there's a certain, and and so the language of negation, the language of deletion, of erasure is more appropriate or the language of poetics is kind of more appropriate kind of discourse. So this is the mystics. And if you think of them, I was thinking about what would a mystical response be to someone like A.J. Eyre, who you looked at last week. So A.J. Eyre, as you remember, he says the burden of proof lies on the theist. So the negative atheist doesn't need to put arguments forward for why they don't believe. What they do is they wait for someone to present an argument. So if you're the theist, and I'm the atheist, and the negative atheist, I'm gonna say to you, listen, tell me what you mean by God, right? Tell me what you mean by that term, and tell me why you believe. And in good faith, right, I wanna do that in good faith, uh, and I think A.J. wanted to do that in good faith. And then I let you explain to me the concept of God and why you believe in that. And then I critique it back and forth and you know, see if I'm persuaded. And I looked at some responses to that argument. So one of the famous responses is from the reformed epistemologist, people like Alvin Plantinga, who he kind of turns it on its head And he argues, well, no, the burden of proof is actually on the atheist, right? Uh, And then there's others who want to say, well, the burden of proof actually lies equally with both parties. Both parties actually kind of believe the same number of things. It doesn't look like it. So the negative atheist says, I don't believe in God. But there is hidden within that certain affirmations. Just like if I say, I don't believe that science can reveal truth. Right, if I say that, I don't believe science can reveal truth about the universe. That is a negation. I'm not affirming anything. I'm, I'm saying something I don't believe in. But if you poke at that enough, you'll find there's an affirmation in it, which is I'm saying I'm believing that language does not touch physical reality. So the scientific method only tells us about uh, uh, the mind only tells us about kind of how human beings see the world, not the world as it is. So there is actually an affirmation in that, and you know, that's the argument. So those are a couple of arguments we looked at last week. But the mystic who would who would listen to air would take the position of A.J. would say, and they would take both positions in a way, right? They would say, every time I have a concept of God, um... I need to pick it apart and critique it. Because any time that I reduce God to some object of knowledge or even experience, what I'm doing is I'm creating an idol, an idolatry. Idolatry coming from the term eidos, And edos was where we get ideology and this kind of idea of essence, that we can know the essence of God. That is idolatry. And so there has to be this a, a, even more radical atheism than error, which is the idea that it's not that you'll ever get a concept that is appropriate. Um, the word is a, the signifier. The signifier God is a unique signifier because it signifies something that you cannot grasp. It signifies something that is beyond all conception. And so atheism becomes not an enemy not a necessary evil not even like as iron sharpens iron you know you can kind of like gradually get a better and a better understanding which some people um think within the church sometimes is that what what happens is the more you deconstruct the more you'll be able to reconstruct something better so you knock down the old house so you can build a better house the, the mystics want to kind of go all the way and go, no, 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 there is no reconstruction, because that reconstruction, no matter how good it is, is still an idolatry. Um, to use an analogy, you could say that um, theology is like architecture, sure. it's a building. In the aftermath of an, of an event, I'll come back to what I mean by event in a second, but in the aftermath of something, this event that we might call religious experience. Uh, you might build a little shack of a theology, right? So you're not a very good architect. You build a little shack and that's your theology. Or you could build a great chapel, a great cathedral. And the cathedral is better than the shack, right? But both of them are just responses, worshipful responses to an event that is beyond all conception. And someone like Thomas Aquinas, funnily enough, although he's in week one, and and this is one of the things to keep in mind, is just because I put somebody in a particular week, very few people will be boxed there. I'm just using them to paint a picture of a certain way of thinking. So someone like Thomas Aquinas, at the end of his life, he had an experience at Mass, and he said, What I have experienced today has made everything I've written but straw. I shall write no more. And he stopped writing, and soon after that he died. And it's not that he rejected everything he wrote. Uh, he just and he just knew that no matter how great the the corpus um, of knowledge and of insight he had, uh, it was but straw in comparison to this event of God. that is beyond all all knowledge. So here you can begin to see hopefully how uh the mystical tradition by and large takes on all of the atheistic, atheistic critiques and in fact often has developed some of those um themselves. Even someone like Karl Barth um you know had a, has a very strong kind of atheistic dimension to some of his work. One of his most fam- or his most famous book is The Epistle to the Romans, where he basically argues that God is the great no, the great a kind of a great crisis uh, that doesn't kind of help us understand or build it. kind of god is a wrecking ball that smashes things um, and that's and being kind of in the in the event of god is an experience of radical unknowing in fact one of the reflections this week is from a little book by an anonymous writer called the cloud of unknowing and so that that phrase, into the cloud of unknowing, or the dark night of the soul, is an attempt to articulate this radical, kind of theological atheism. Um, there's a numerous brilliant thinkers who have talked about how atheism is closer to God than theism. Um, people like Simone Vey, who might be in this year's course, can't remember if I kept her in, um, but she's been in all of the, the previous ones. Uh, Heidegger said that. Paul Tillich has said that. Uh, a guy called Ernst Bloch has said that. Slavio Žižek, uh, Various thinkers have talked about atheism as this radical negation that is not opposed to the affirmation of God, but somehow deepens it. Um, you could say that the word God for some of these mystical writers. And it's again difficult to, to pile all these people into the term mystical. Uh, I almost wanna say that a lot of the theological thinkers that we'll encounter in the next few weeks are thinkers of the other and are thinkers of otherness. And what I mean by that, philosophers use the word other with a capital O often to signify Something that is utterly beyond us, something that we cannot reduce to understanding, to a reflection of ourselves. And that term, um, you know, it remains very alive, and we're going to look at that, as I say, in future weeks. So these are thinkers of radical otherness. And otherness is so central to what it is to be human. Um, and by that, what I mean is we are driven by what we do not have. We are driven by what we do not understand, uh, by what we cannot articulate. Even the very beginnings of language, language kind of comes about as an attempt to name things, to understand things. And the frustration and the inability to say something actually generates this multiplicity of words. Uh, you know, poetry is most alive when it's trying to speak of something that it can't articulate. That's when the language becomes r- richest, uh, whenever it's kind of stretched to breaking point and uh, stretched to such a point that a something sublime kind of shines through. It's like uh, the example of if you say to somebody, words cannot describe how much I love you. That's a failure, right? Words cannot describe how much I love you in a way that is a failure of language. But it's a successful failure, right? It's a failure that succeeds in its failure. Like, that is really the best way to express love. Um, Not necessarily in those exact words, but expressing love through articulating the failure to be able to express it, right? And then to use analogies. uh, It actually communicates... what it it seems to not be able to communicate. The sublime kind of like shines through uh, the cracks and even desire itself. You know, we desire to go places we've never been. The scientist, the biologist is interested in what they do not know. The physicist is looking at the cosmos and asking the questions about what we don't yet have an answer for. So you could say that to be human, is to be drawn to small, low-otherness, right? Small, low-otherness is anything we don't currently know, but we could know. Um, I love watching YouTube videos of things that I don't know anything about. And it might be computer programming. I was recently looking at how microchips work. Uh, you know, I just, I don't know how they work, and it's like, I So I watch YouTube videos on this and I'm drawn by, I'm sure many of you have done this if you're late at night, watch some YouTube video on some random thing and it's really interesting. So small O-otherness is you're drawn to things that you do not know. Big O-otherness is the idea that there is potentially something that is not provisionally unknown, right? Unknown because we don't currently know it. But it's also possible... That there is a dimension to reality that is inherently unknown. Now, what the mystics talk about is they say that something remains through the most radical negation and questioning of that, the most radical atheistic um, pulling apart of all of our conceptions of what that might be. Something persists. Uh, and someone like Jean-Luc Marion he uses the term counter experience he doesn't say you have a religious experience he would say you have a religious counter experience Um, it's a kind of experience at the limits of experience it's a paradoxical form of experience now one way to understand this um, is one of the videos I was watching a while back was uh, uh, some some people here are mathematicians, I've watched some of those YouTube videos, and one of them was talking about, could we experience something that was, say a fifth a five dimensional object in three dimensional space, right So you have something of five dimensions uh, could is that something that is completely impossible for us to have any experience of? And uh, the response is, well, no, we could, right. And the way it can be explained is if you imagine living on a two-dimensional plane, right? So you're in a two, you live in a, you live in two dimensions, um, and a three-dimensional object comes into that experience, right? Comes into your two-dimensional world. What would it look like? So imagine a sphere, right? You have a sphere, so three-dimensional object, and it goes into your two-dimensional world. If we're in that two-dimensional world, what we're going to see is a dot that gradually becomes a circle, it gets bigger and bigger, and then gradually gets smaller and smaller back into a dot, right? So if you imagine the sphere going onto a page, as soon as the sphere touches the page, there's a dot on the page. And then if you can imagine the sphere going through that page, that dot would become like a circle you know the circumference of the sphere you would see the circle grow and as, and as the sphere passes through the piece of paper then the circle would get smaller and smaller into a dot <laughs> um, and in a similar way the mystics talk about certain types of experience that that lead that kind of the individual feels is being touched by a comp- something completely other right so and and this bedazzlement decentering experience paradoxical experience burning bush is a good example of like a, a paradoxical experience um marion calls this a saturated phenomenon you know saturation where you're kind of so overwhelmed over but bedazzled it's tr- it's a trauma now again without getting too overly spiritual there's very natural versions of this. So trauma is an example of this. A trauma, one way of thinking about a trauma is that it is an experience that you do not have the symbolic ability to to grasp. It, it overwhelms you. So what's happening is, so like children have traumas all the time, right? In the sense of they're feeling things, whether it's hunger or coldness or... Um, illness, they don't have the language to be able to understand what they're feeling, so but they're still feeling it. There's something going on that is that short circuits them, and that's a kind that short circuiting is a little bit like what a lot of the mystics talk about is kind of, as religious experience. It is radically transforming, and it's we're unable to kind of. Kind of put it into our categories of understanding, uh, but we cannot help but be in awe and fear and wonder at this event. Now, I don't want to say too much. I'm not actually going to introduce the individual readings. I want you to come across them and experience them for yourselves. Um, but what I can, what I'll say is this is, you know, from a philosophical perspective, the question is, well, is that a reasonable position to have, right? And uh, there, that's not something I want to get too deeply into, but people like Jean-Luc Marion, who I mentioned, is a philosopher who says that actually this makes total sense. It is possible that there is some absolute other God, right, that we, that we can... Feel overwhelmed and short circuited by, but unable to grasp. That is theoretically possible. Um, Anselm says the same thing. For Anselm, he says, Well, it's, there are things that exist in reality and that we can conceptualize. Um, there are things that exist only in our mind, right, that don't exist in reality. So let's take a, a painting. I'm about to paint something. It exists in my mind, but not in reality. And then I paint it now it exists in my mind and it exists in reality and then he says it's possible that something can exist in reality but cannot be contained by the mind and he says and if that exists that would be god right god is a signifier of something um for the mystics god is the signifier of something that exists in reality but cannot be contained by by thought or experience and this opens up something incredible. Like the, the, the mystical tradition remains alive and well uh, in, in the scientific world and in the world of philosophy and the world of theology in that uh, what is birthed through that uh, tradition is the idea that nothingness or otherness is as important as what is, that what we can see and what is the same. So if we think of otherness and sameness, and we think of something and nothing, um, otherness, and like you could, you could say like a. a, a that the, only important, you know, the only important stuff is what exists, and the only stuff that we really can know is stuff that is similar to us, right? That's, and everything else is unimportant. If something's completely other, who cares? And if something doesn't exist, it's of no relevance to us. And that's a, you know, a common sense kind of idea. But even with something like mathematics, mathematics took a massive leap forward when they symbolized nothing, Right? Zero, right? Zero is, and zero for some was a very threatening thing, right? There was a there was a theological dimension to that. Um, I don't know how big this really is. There's, I think, there's controversy about it, but there's definitely some uh, in the church where did not want zero because there is no lack, there is nothing, there is no nothing, and to to sim- signify zero to signify lack is in a way. Um, they thought un-Christian, un- right? So, but zero was this signifying of nothingness that is, of course, incredibly important. And then we have negative numbers, which are even more interesting: minus one, minus two, minus three, you know, and then imaginary numbers, etc., and real numbers. Um, so, the there is increasingly an interest in not simply what exists, but the importance in our lives of what doesn't exist. Or doesn't or we cannot conceptualize uh, again trauma is a good example of something that happens that is in a way other but incredibly uh, uh, real um, another example would be uh, a lot of us have alternative worlds in our minds so we're existing in a world uh, where we're married to a particular person or we got a divorce or we lost a job or we're, we live in a world where we have a whole pile of experiences, but we have alternative worlds where things are different, where we're with a person that we're not with, where we um, took a different path in our lives, right? That alternative universe doesn't exist, right? It's just a fiction. It doesn't exist, but it's but it has a real impact in your life. And sometimes you have to give up those worlds. We have to realize that those worlds are fantasies, right? And that, that are actually making us depressed. <laughs> so we live not just in terms of 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 the, world, the life that we have, we also weirdly live in worlds in which uh, which don't exist. The other thing about being human is we don't just live with who we are part of us is who we want to be um, who we long to be who we regret not being uh, to be human is to live also between what we have and what we don't have right so it's not just what we have what we don't have is important as well so the mystics. Are part of this, they're saying, well, God kind of like is an interesting signifier of something that is the most important thing that is not a thing, that doesn't exist, at least does not exist like regular objects. So for the mystics, God hyperexists. God exists in such a super abundant form that we cannot speak of God. And so atheism then becomes as I say, this purification process. And it's a radical atheism, because a lot of philosophical atheism is provisional. It's like you may come up with a concept that I believe in. I don't currently believe in any of the concepts of God that I've heard, but if I'm a consistent atheist, then I have to admit that maybe you'll come up with a concept that that I will be convinced by. Whereas the mystics are even more radical atheists because they say there will never be a concept of God that lives up to God, right? So there, it's, a, it's, a, it's an atheism which in advance shuts off any possible conception of God as an idolatry. Um, now, the week after this, we're then going to see a negation of this, and then the week after that, we're going to see this other negation of negation, and we're going to like, see how this notion of otherness um, can express itself in kind of different ways. But this is really the, the first, and the, the reason why I'm saying this is kind of such an important week is because this is the first point where it's very hard to go. Where does atheism stop and theism start? Right? Where they're, they're so, intro- like, the, the mystic will always welcome the atheistic critique. The more, the better. Um, one of the most famous, I think this is in the, uh, the reflections, this line of Meister Eckhart's I pray God rid me of God. Right? Which is this idea, like, every time I say God, it is less than God. So my prayer to God is to rid me of God. And in that movement between naming and unnaming, that's the space of faith, right? And uh, Marion calls this the space of denomination. So you, to nominate means to name, to denominate means to unname. And so the, the person of faith nominates and then denominates, they say God, and they say that is less than God. And, you know, I like the term denomination. Churches are called denominations, right? They are the places where you should dename. They are the places where we try to rid ourselves of this kind of idolatry. This is why Rudolf Otto, who, again, is a reflection this week, he, um, you'll see in his work that he says that the experience of a fear and a Terror and a kind of awe-inspiring shuddering is the kind of the basis of the religious experience. That's it. It's the basis of the religious faith is not some sort of intellectual affirmation, um, but a sense of awe at something holy, holy other, something holy other that we find ourselves caught up in. And so the mystic is not someone who's going to argue for God or for some sort of object, but they will speak of a kind of sense of a traumatic um, type of encounter or event or a traumatic form of experience in which um, they feel undone, some otherness that calls to them and that they want to live in fidelity to that they want to find a way to do justice to in song, in speech, and in works. Uh, Protecting that experience, so not kind of like reducing it to some idol, to some edos, to some idolatry, to some ideology, but to somehow have an expansive language that um, is a type of praise. So let's say a theopoetics, rather than a kind of a theology. So that's basically what you're going to encounter this week. And there's, a, you know, there's some music, there's some uh, you know, different kinds of ways to, to go about that. And um, I think that's all I want to say about the mystics, yes. So to, to be clear then, this is the first week in which you'll experience the negation of negation. This is the first week where hopefully you will um, understand dialectics by just feeling it. Just saying, oh, right, okay, these now are coming together in a, in a kind of interesting and more rich way. Uh, and uh, yes, this notion of God, the three-letter word God, as a signifier that signifies something that cannot be signified. right? That's, that's why it's a unique signifier. Um, there's, it's, maybe there are other signifiers that do this, um, in psychoanalysis there 's there 's the term the phallus, which is similar it it signifies something that that doesn 't exist um, but yet yeah, god is is a word in in language that tries to have a space for something that is not reducible to uh, even not reducible to your economy, economy, it's not something that can be bought or sold, it's not something that can be grasped. And this is, this is very key in terms of the contemporary world where increasingly you know, you, every, the only thing that counts is kind of like uh, what um, B. Young Chul Han talks about, the world of pure positivity, the world of achievement, the world where um, everything is possible and where there is no real otherness there is otherness things that you don't have but you can achieve you can kind of try and get those things you can try to be whole and complete you can you know you can try to to um in like almost you've got a super ego conjunction to enjoy and to have and then be young chill Han talks about the need to let to be lazy and to the need to kind of create a space where you realize there is there is a kind of like a hole within reality, H O L E. So the holy is a hole, right? The holy is a hole in in stuff. It's it's something that that cannot be stopped up, and that we need some experience of that. So there is this Russian sect that would cut a hole in the wall of their home, and they would pray to the hole. So unlike having icons, the gap itself became holy. There's something about that that is key to the mystics. That there is we need a dimension of space we need a dimension that we cannot colonise we cannot um, uh, fully grasp and that's that's what the mystics kind of call God now I say for the mystics it's a hyper presence it's something that is more real than anything else Um, but it's complicated so like someone like Meister Eckhart sometimes he'll talk about superabundance, and sometimes it will be like pure negation it's uh, and and the womb and a type of nothingness so this idea of excess and lack kind of like they become a little bit interchangeable because both of them express something that you can't grasp right? Uh, and that kind of opens up a a much more interesting dialogue between theism and atheism so I'm going to look to see what questions you have and we'll take it from there Uh, let's see Oh, Courtney says, I don't remember anything from AJ Air this week. Was it AJ Air? Am I wrong? Oh, Anthony Flew. Sorry, it was Anthony Flew. Thank you. Sorry, Courtney. Um, we didn't do AJ Air. Uh, I don't know why he was in my mind. He will be in a future atheism for Lent. But yes, Anthony Flew. That's who I met. <laughs> um. Oh yes, now I confused everybody because someone else is going like, "Oh, I think maybe A.J. Ayer is coming next week." No, um, A.J. Ayer was this kind of. Uh, uh, he also had a radical kind of atheistic argument. Um, he kind of argued just that the, the arguments for God or against God are utterly meaningless. So, it, and that was his kind of position. So, that was confusing. Um, Oh, Chris I says, yeah, someone once asked Rowan Williams, uh, then Archbishop of Canterbury, how he got on with Richard Dawkins as they were both lecturers um, in, in the same Oxford College. Uh, and then Williams said, there isn't a problem. That God he doesn't believe in, I don't believe in either. Yes, yes, that, that is the answer um, of, of the mystics in many respects, is the God that is not believed in. By atheists is also the god that the mystics don't believe in um, and that's, that's what someone like Simone Ve means by atheism closer to god it's like yes this is this purification process the, the same gods you don't believe in we don't believe in there's there's a, there's a an argument that some atheists have used R- Ricky Gervais said this once so it's, a, it's a good one because he says like I'm just you're all atheists about lots of gods right if you get an encyclopedia of gods and there's 300 gods in that you don't believe in 299 of them. You just believe in one. And I just, believe, I just don't believe in that one either, right? But then the mystic's response to that is, yes, no, you're absolutely right. We actually, every conception of God, all 300 in the encyclopedia, are uh, attempts to grasp what cannot be grasped. And theology at its most mature is a deconstructive theology. So theology at its best is a type of language that auto-deconstructs itself, that leaves room for the radical unknowing. And so you see this, for example, in uh, the Hebrew scriptures where you have, interestingly, uh, lots of names for God. So, and these names often contradict, right? So it's like God is a peacemaker, God is a warrior, God who hears everything, God who's deaf and doesn't hear something, right? There's all of these names of God that clash um, and that's a quite Kantian. remember in the antinomies you looked at where Kant says you kind of the, the problem is not that you, reason doesn't get you anywhere, it gets you to mutually exclusive places. Well, a lot of the writers, I uh, think the Jewish writers, they played with this. they knowingly kind of had a multiplicity of names precisely to remind you that the names feel that the names that none of the names kind of like work or they work when they're, Um, you know, in some sort of analogous kind of way. And then in the midst of the Hebrew Scriptures, then you also have the I Am, right? The kind of this unnameable name of God. And of course, you have the Tetragrammaton, this notion of of the word God can't even be pronounced. So you have all of these strategies that kind of remind you that no, it's not the case that the believers disbelieve in 299 gods but believe in that 300th. It's that there is a type of language that protects God, that denames God and the naming of God. Uh, Someone was saying the audio wasn't good, but somebody else said it was all right. So hopefully it's okay. Um, Oh yes, Courtney said, the discussion of the five dimensional object in the three-dimensional universe reminds me of Flatland. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, I remember Flatland. I've never read it. Is it just a short story? It's just a little short story, isn't it? Because I know of it, um, and I know the concept, where it's people who live in a two-dimensional world, isn't it? So, yeah. Um, that's, that, the reason why I use that example is that s- some mystics, they, they write in a very sophisticated way about very unique types of experience. That is as I say, Marion calls counter-experience, that is similar to the sphere coming into the two-dimensional object. So whenever you read Rudolf Otto uh, this week, he's one of those people who, he says, like, there's a certain form of tremor, of awe and terror that is, I mean, it's kind of like anxiety, right? Anxiety does not have a traditional object, right? So fear, the way, people often think about is it, fear has an object and anxiety doesn't. Now, just to, if anyone is into their psychoanalysis, the idea anxiety does have a type of object, but it's, it's, not, it's not the type of object that fear has. And that's kind of what Rudolf Otto was saying, is that, that in human experience, there are affects that, um, that are best understood as encounters with something wholly other. Uh, oh, this is moving. Let's see. There's lots of conversation here. This is good. Um, oh, John, let's see. If negative theology is grounded in the notion of plenitude beyond us, how do you relate this to lack as absence in Lacan? Um, and that's a great question. So what John's asking is, and uh, I think it was um, was it Dawn last week? Was it, is it Dawn's your name? Um, he was uh, you who was kind of like seeing where this is going. John, you're kind of seeing where where this will go. Is I'm trying to, and it's very hard for me to do this. But I'm trying to stick with what the mystics are saying, <laughs> which is John uses the word plenitude, right? So the the mystics. And Anselm is key in this. Anselm is basically saying God is an excess, a plenitude, an overwhelming experience. Just like I mentioned the child who has an overwhelming experience when they're young, that, can't, that marks them. And that can be a very negative experience. I mean, trauma can be very negative, uh, but it's an overwhelming experience that short circuits you. And that's the mystical understanding. is is plenitude. God is hyper real. Um, And so that's why we can't name God. And then John is saying, well, how does that connect with the idea of lack, negation, negativity? Um, If you were listening to my conversations with Richard Puthby a few weeks ago um, you'll know we talked a lot about that so yes all I'll say John is yeah that's this is going to, this is interesting and that's where we'll, we'll go in about two or three weeks we'll kind of get into that Lucanian notion of negativity um, and I think they are interestingly related so let's see if we can kind of unpick that in like uh, whenever we get to to kind of the contemporary debates but yeah the it's good that John mentioned plenitude because that is a a really important word for uh, the mystics for people like pseudo Dionysius where God is let's say a hyper presence a hyper reality um, and uh, it's like being sunken in the depths of the ocean a ship a ship sunk in the depths of the ocean I don't know which mystic used this analogy but uh, it was somebody said like the ship is full of the ocean and the ocean is is full of the ship right the, but this ship only contains a fragment of the ocean, but the ocean contains the entire ship. That's plenitude. God is the ocean. We are submerged, we are saturated, and it's pure plenitude. So um, hopefully we'll make those connections in a couple of weeks. Uh... Oh yeah, Tibbo says, uh, and this is about last week, but I like what you're saying, so I'll, I'll bring it up. You said, um, would... Um, Would the handicap of non-existence found in Gaskin's proof from last week be a feature, not a bug, a lack within God? So Tim, so the last one you did, which I hope you enjoyed, I think it's very funny, which is the ontological argument for the non-existence of God. Um, Timo, you're saying exactly kind of what I want to do with that argument, and I'm going to use it in the book that I'm writing, That, that in a way... Like it might be successful in saying that that nothingness is, well, nothingness is a type of, is the potentially the cauldron out of which everything comes and out of which everything arises so um, there there could be a way of taking that Gaskins proof, ontological proof and reading it either in a mystical way uh, you know, I yeah, I like what you're saying because you could almost imagine Meister Eckhart saying that like you could almost imagine that that being something that Eckhart would say, you know, and and then kind of argue that then the nothing that is God, which he calls the Godhead, then the, the nothing that is the Godhead is out of which everything arises and out of which we become. So you could probably you know have, say have a, have a mystical version of that, and I think you could probably have. As John was mentioning, you probably have a Lacanian version of it as well. So there's something in that argument that I think is is very, very rich. And I like what you're saying. It's, it's maybe um, uh, not a bug, but yeah, there's something kind of at least um, metaphorically useful in it. Uh, Oh, yeah. Stephen Fowler says, that's a good question, actually. When you refer to psychoanalysis, are you actually referring to Lacanianism? Um, and that's a good question. Mostly when I talk about psychoanalysis, yes, the Freudian-Lacanian tradition is the primary one I'm referring to. Not actually when I'm talking about trauma. Actually, interestingly, when, when I was talking about trauma there, that, I think, is very similar to what Wilfred Bion. About. So whenever I said that trauma is a type of overwhelming experience of being overwhelmed by the infant, which is what Freud was talking about in the seduction theory, uh, which the seduction theory was the idea that a child experiences sometimes abuse and that abuse they cannot conceptualize in any way. And Stephen, I know you know this, but um, and that can lead to a whole pile of sexual issues, you know, as an adult. Um, but beyond, he talks about this thing, oh, this experience, and that experience seems to be what you cannot alphabetize, what you cannot put into language. So, but yeah, but generally speaking, and I'll always try and say Lacan, but if, generally speaking, when I'm talking about psychoanalysis, I'm talking about Freud and Lacan. Um, oh, Derek says, where can I read more about these Russian uh, whole, wall hole prayers? I've searched before and come up empty, but I find the idea really compelling. Derek, I'm the same as you. I don't know where I first heard about that. I wrote about it in my first book. I must've been in some seminar, heard about it. I did research and all I could find was like a few paragraphs about them. Like they are such a small sect. They seem to exist. So on the Wikipedia page about Russian Orthodoxy, there is, I think it's the Russian Orthodoxy, but, but, but there is a well-known kind of Russian Orthodox church and they are mentioned and there's a name for them and they're mentioned. But I have not found anything substantial about them and I don't know, I don't think that they are a living tradition necessarily. It might have been a very brief sect. So if anybody does find out stuff, um, maybe put in the chat, GPT or whatever and see what, what that comes up with. Um, but yeah, it seems to be... I'm sure there's stuff written, but I have not done a deep dive. And I found exactly the same as you. I found a few paragraphs about them um, and and nothing more, just as a sect of the Russian Orthodox. And there's a name for them. I can't even remember the name. Um, let's see. Oh, yeah. Uh, Stephen says... Some believers make worship of Jesus what might be almost considered an idolatry. But since New Testament theology identifies Jesus as the image of God, is it legit? I mean, this is, this is interesting. Like Someone like Karl Barth, who's very orthodox, um, he basically says God is a crisis. So he's a crisis theologian, right? God is... The big no to our is God is that which kind of like um, disrupts our understanding of knowledge and wisdom and all of that. But then, so Barth's theology is very Christocentric because he says the only thing we can know or talk about is um, God as revealed, right? So and he so he starts his whole theology, and I think it's an interesting way to go about it. Is it's kind of the aftermath because like yeah, there's this there's You cannot speak, and he rejects natural theology and uh, there's a very there's a little book you can buy of a debate between him and uh Bruner um, where he just absolutely assaults the idea of natural theology that we can know stuff about God and for him the, the basically what the Christian is is the person who kind of stands on this kind of idea of a revelation, but Bart also would say that it's not that God is unknown and then Christ makes God known. He would, he would say, God is unknown and then Christ makes God known as unknown. So he would kind of say there's an unknowingness that is within the revelation. So it's that, there is, a so, so Bart wants to keep that otherness and that hiddenness within the revelation itself. Um, so yeah, so uh, that's why a lot of theologians do not engage in the arguments of the existence of God, they don't, um, even people like Schleimacher and stuff like that, they start from this idea, like so Schleimacher famously starts from the experience of utter dependence, this idea that I am absolutely dependent, that I feel that I am not the my own source and that I feel that I and everything is utterly dependent, this is this, this sense and and then that, and then out of that, they read say the Bible and Christianity and this, the sayings of Jesus, um, as a way of holding that and making sense of it. I guess I would say this, this because I'd say that what one would say is the teachings of Jesus are do not reveal or reveal and conceal, so parabolistic speech. Um, you cannot get a theology from Jesus in a way. Like parables both reveal and conceal. Um, Jesus is, generally his way of communicating is is one that exposes your own desire to yourself. So Jesus is a type of analyst, a type of psychoanalyst where, you you know, people encounter their own heart, their own unconscious desires. Um, A lot of, so Jesus says different things to different people. And what seems to be, of importance is not communicating knowledge of god but in but in count, you encountering the truth the truth of yourself and the truth setting you free and so i guess you know some theologians would say i don't want to say bart would say this necessarily but that that in so, a figure like jesus you have a type of discourse that reveals and conceals and that is itself deconstructive um and of course, you know, confessional Christians would say, and, and Jesus reflects and is is, is, is God incarnate. So the, the unknowingness is there. And if I use an analogy, it's like in, in Newtonian science, there is what you know and what you don't know. And the ultimate unknown in Newtonian science is why the world has these constants. So there's the unknown, God is the unknown, and then everything else can be understood. In, in contemporary physics, there is an unknown within what we know. There is probability. There's wave-particle duality. There's there's a certain unknowing that is not due to lack of knowledge, but is kind of like part of it. And so Bart would almost say there's the unknowing of God, and then in Christ that unknowing dwells among us. <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's answering your question at all, but that was kind of what you sparked in me. Uh, Oh yeah, and then this actually follows on from Stephen. So how does the mystic wrestle with the incarnation? Um, okay, in, in a nutshell, maybe I'll just I'll stick with what I said about, to Stephen there, is that for someone like Meister Eckhart, I think what he finds in the gospels is uh, a type of encounter with this radical otherness. And you could even say the reason why we have four gospels Rather than one, Um, and there was there was a theologian who tried to merge. And like, think about it. Like, why have evangelicals, for example, not tried to make one gospel? Right? Because you'd think that that would be something you would do. Because if, for example, you believe right, the Bible is without error, without contradiction then it would kind of make sense to just kind of merge them all into one, not to exclude the four, but you could merge them all into one. But it was Tashian, I think it was pronounced Tashian, who wanted to do this, and he was condemned as a heretic, right? So um, there's an idea that, that an event has happened that created four different testimonies that don't fit together, that don't neatly nestle in and that actually that's part of the power of the truth so in the same way that someone is in court and they're saying that something very traumatic happened to them if they're able to give one very consistent way of description it's that hints that they're lying whereas if what they said to the police and what they said to the judge and what they said to their friends is all a bit different that's kind of that points to the, the kind of the, the truth of something happening because the trauma kind of like short circuits you until you can't remember days and times whereas if you just made it up you can have a very consistent narrative in the same way these four gospels themselves that very structure kind of like um hints at uh this explosion of of the unknown so you know that that could be one way of Thinking about it, but that's a that's a big question that I'll uh, I'll avoid. <laughs> um, oh, Phil saying he also wants to know, so maybe we need to to do something more on that. I, I would say, like the th- this is one of the things I like about Richard Boothby's work, is Richard Boothby has given I think a really powerful expression of the importance of Jesus within religion and within Christianity. And by that, I mean uh, what he argues for, but this is going we're, going, we're going three weeks ahead, so I won't say too much, but, but he argues that, that Jesus gives us an image of someone who says, if you want to experience and encounter the unknown, God, God, the absolute other, you encounter that by being open to the absolute other, Within your enemy and within your neighbor, so I, this is Richard Boothby, is not a best, but this is and this is what I would say, right? So I'm giving you my thoughts here. Is that that I think what's really interesting about Jesus and what and what makes Jesus a central figure is not what he was, not the miracles necessarily or the sayings of Jesus, many of which have been said by other people and you know have a tradition before him. What was really interesting was. Was that this notion of the unknown remains fundamental within the Gospels? It remains fundamental, but the unknown is focused to the human other, to the other, uh, and you can even see this in the Gospels, where not the sorry the New Testament as a whole, where there's this idea that you should love God, and then you get this idea that you should love God and love your neighbour. That they are basically the same. They look alike, right? Love your God, love God, love your neighbor, and then later on, I think it's one of the letters of John's, where it just says love your neighbor, right? And then, and, and in doing that, you're loving God. So it starts love God with all your heart. Then it's kind of love God and love your neighbor, and then it's like love your neighbor. That's it. And if you love your neighbor, you love God. And if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God, even if you say you do. So that might be that might be. A, I don't want to say a mystical way of understanding Jesus, but it's definitely what I think and what Boothby thinks is that there is something about that Jesus and this idea of otherness, it's central to religion, I mean if I was to kind of try to articulate what religion is, for me religion at its best is a sensitivity to other, capital O otherness, that's what it is um, religion in different forms is is a type of attempt to wrestle with to tarry with to um, keep open the space of radical otherness and in the figure of jesus it is in the encounter with the other that you encounter this otherness don't know if the mystics would say that but that's what i would say Uh, oh yes and phil looked up wikipedia i think old believers the old ritualists has them listed as a minor group? Yes. The whole worshippers. Die Dai Miki, or something like that. Relinquish the use of icons and pray to the east through a hole in the wall. Yeah, the old believers, that's it. So, I mean, Phil, if you get any further than that, great. Although, to be honest, that's the only thing that I'm interested in. It's like, I think it's amazing that there was this group that actually were called the whole worshippers. They literally, you know, the old believers. It's kind of, um, very, very powerful image. Okay, I don't want to take up too much of your time because this you've got so much happening. And there's so much happening on the WhatsApp group. I don't know about the others. Facebook I don't really use, but WhatsApp's been very lively. Um, and that's great because you are having a vital conversation with each of these reflections and also you're seeing a vital conversation. I've kind of artificially constructed a type of, vital conversation and of course it's artificial because some of these people never knew each other they're different ages and this week you know last week we're ta- looking at people in the 20th century this week in the medieval period but what I'm doing is I'm constructing a conversation that is not a chronological but it is logical a, a dialectic conversation that is vital and that is moving forward and as I say in the midst of that you guys are having these conversations about each of the reflections, and we'll see how this continues to move on. So, good luck, I think uh, Maimonides is the first one. You've got John Cage in there, you've got Julian of Norwich, you've got Rudolf Otto, Uh, you have Meister Eckhart, Uh, so there's lots of really cool stuff that you're going to encounter this week.